Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. If you'll give me 90 minutes, I will give you the world, and my broadcast partners standing by will give us insight into current events happening across the entire world as we look at how they are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. David Dolan with the Middle East News Update upcoming will go to Jerusalem, Winky Madad. He's going to give us the thoughts about the Christian influence and the move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Itamar Marcus will talk about the concluding activities of the March of Return. However, they say they're going to continue on. John Rood has a European Union update, and we'll talk about Jews and salvation with David James in our weekly conversation. But right now, we go to the catbird seat in Washington. Ken Timmerman standing by. Ken, I guess the big headline has to be about the North Korean summit. Is it on? Is it off? U.S. hopeful that the Trump-Kim meeting is going to go ahead. What are your thoughts? Well, frankly, we're going to see. And we're going to see if Kim was serious about uh, wanting this summit. Was he serious about denuclearization? Or was he just doing what his father and grandfather have done before, which was trying to game the system, game negotiations with the U.S., in order to get financial lifeline thrown towards his decrepit and flailing regime. Uh, we don't know this yet. And uh, the, these last-minute gesticulations by Kim Jong-un, where he claims, for example, that the fact that the U.S. and South Korea are going ahead with military exercises, which have been planned for months and which the North Koreans knew about for months and which up until now had, they had no problem with, well, they're using that as an excuse, and then they're using as an excuse the, the fact that the National Security Advisor John Bolton suggested in a televised interview last weekend that, that there is a precedent for North Korea giving up its nuclear uh, weapons and infrastructure, and that's Libya in 2003. By the way, I was in Libya uh, when Gaddafi decided to turn over his nuclear weapons production gear. Uh, the agreement was made in December 2003. I was there in March of 2004, when a U.S. ship arrived in Tripoli Harbor, and they actually put on board that ship Gaddafi's missile launchers and his uranium enrichment centrifuges. That's what John Bolton has in mind. He was at the State Department at the time, deeply involved in that negotiation with Gaddafi. Of course, what Kim is worried about is what happened later. And later, as we know, uh, with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and Obama as President, the United States took part in an EU effort to topple Gaddafi through jihadi Muslim terrorist groups. So that's what Kim is worrying about, worried about, and that's what he's referring to. But look, we don't know if the summit's going to go ahead, and, and the president is being, I think, very clear-headed about this. If the North Koreans agree to denuclearize, de the summit goes ahead. If they don't, it doesn't. Well, we'll have to wait and see, as you said, and we'll continue to stay on top of this story. Ken, in Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan is urging the Islamic world to unite against Israel and want to have a summit, actually, in Ankara there, based upon what was going on at the Israeli-Gaza Strip border. Uh, this guy is not going to sit back and be still. He's trying to get everybody to go against the Jewish state. I'm talking about everybody in the Islamic world. 
You think they'll come together now, or is he just uh, trying to make a lot of noise, get a lot of news headlines? Well, you know, he's just he's just uh, whistling something uh, in uh, <laughs> Istanbul. Look, here's the problem, Jimmy. Uh, Erdogan is showing himself increasingly to be a radical Islamist dictator whose goal is to reestablish the Muslim caliphate, and he is supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. He is supporting ISIS. He's supporting terrorist groups. Uh, he's invaded his neighbor, Syria. Uh, he's massacring Kurds in his own country and massacring Kurds in Syria. He'd like to do the same thing in Iraq. He has helped Iran to murder Kurds. And he claims that Israel has gone beyond the pale for its response to armed Hamas terrorists trying to storm the southern border. Erdogan is calling Israel's actions in killing 60 of these uh, uh, terrorists genocide. I mean, it's absolutely pathetic. And frankly, I don't think today, in today's Muslim world, that he is going to get a great deal of support. The Saudis have clearly backed away from Turkey. They're calling Erdogan a terrorist. The UAE is siding with the Saudis. So is Bahrain. Some of the other countries are on the fence. You're going to have a an alliance. The Muslim world, this is what's kind of interesting. The Muslim world is really splitting today into two armed camps. The pro-Saudi camp, which is pro-U.S. and increasingly pro-Israel, and then the Turkish-Iranian camp, which is anti-American, anti-Israel, and uh, jihadist. That's what you're going to see. He could get a, those jihadist regimes, you know, Qatar, coming to his side, perhaps a couple of others, Sudan maybe, uh, a few others, but he will not get the big countries that the U.S. relies on, uh, in particular Saudi Arabia. Well, speaking of the United States, he also said that the Middle East uh, is a place where the United States is more a part of the problem than the solution. Why well, He's taking even on the United States as well. Well, Erdogan is isolating himself, frankly, and I think at a certain point, he's going to find he's pushed a bit too far. Right now, within the U.S. administration, uh, he has got the support of the Pentagon, General Mattis, who, uh, as an old uh, Cold Warrior, as an old NATO hand, sees Turkey's role in NATO as more important than Erdogan's radical actions and radical statements. But you've got John Bolton and you've got Mike Pompeo, and you've got, I think, increasingly the president himself, who see that Turkey has become, and Erdogan in particular, has become increasingly radical and is no longer behaving as a U.S. ally in NATO. So there could come a point, and I, we're not there yet, but there could come a point, Jimmy, where the Trump administration says, enough is enough, Erdogan. We've had it with you. We're pulling out of our base in Incirlik. Uh, we're removing our assets. You say you're a NATO ally. You're not behaving as one. You are no longer going to have the benefits of membership in NATO. How important is that base for the United States there in Turkey? Well, these days it's not important at all. Frankly, because the Turks have not allowed us to use it for operations in Iraq or against ISIS for the most part, uh, it's become completely sidelined. It's basically a hostage to the Turkish government. The, uh, it's a NATO base. Germany, two years ago, pulled out all of its assets, all of its planes and airmen from the base. Frankly, I think we should shut it down and blow it up so Turkey can't take it over 
and move those aircraft to Erbil in northern Iraq uh, in the Kurdish region. Uh, and the Kurds would love to have a U.S. military base there. They told me that uh, last summer during my last trip to the region. Uh, they would love nothing better than that. Let's talk about Iraq just a bit, since you're pretty knowledgeable of that country, having visited there this last year. The prime minister's election going on, it does not look like Al-Badi, who is the present prime minister, has enough votes to go back into office. And uh, then you have uh, the former prime minister, Maliki. He is vying for the position. However, neither one of these men capable of winning unless they get Muqtada Sadr, the high-ranking Islamic cleric there in Iraq, and of course he had the Mahdi militia, the Messiah's militia. He's the kingpin as far as this election is concerned, is he not? Yeah, he's the kingmaker here. And uh, look, Muqtada Sadr is an interesting figure. Uh, he, uh, while he does have very deep ties to Iran, he also has been positioning himself in recent years as an Iraqi nationalist and a, an anti-corruption leader. So uh, he has uh, appealed to a base of voters in Iraq that neither Abadi nor Maliki can appeal to. Uh, and I wouldn't automatically dismiss him as an Iranian stooge. I think he's shown himself to be wily, to reinvent himself. He's reinvented himself already several times, and he's only in his, his early 40s. I wouldn't take these results as anything negative. I think that we need in the United States to sit back and watch uh, to see what's going to happen. Iraq is a parliamentary system. So whatever government comes to power will be some type of coalition. Our national interest in Iraq is twofold. Number one, to limit the control of Iran over the Iraqi government. And you'll notice just this past week the Treasury Department uh, sanctioned a bank in Iraq, for, as well as the Iranian Central Bank, uh, for uh, supporting terrorism, because the Iranians have pretty much control, they have extensive control of the Iraqi banking sector. So our first interest is limiting Iran's interest in Iraq, uh, and our second interest, obviously, is eliminating the ISIS presence in Iraq and any sort of terror uh, a stronghold or terror base there. Well, Muqtada Sadr could not become prime minister, as I understand it, because he was not even a candidate. But is there a possibility that could change at all? No, he, he will not be prime minister. But as you mentioned, he will be the kingmaker. So whoever does become prime minister will have his blessing. And we don't know what conditions he's going to impose on them. Uh, but uh, it will be um, interesting to watch. Look, parliamentary debates, coalition building is always uh, uh, <laughs> a delicate balancing act, whether it happens in Britain, uh, Germany, Israel, or Iraq. Politicians across every nation of the world will make decisions that will set the Bible prophecy in place, and in particular, when we think about Iraq, that's a biblical Babylon located in Revelation chapter 18. That's why we report on these different nations, countries in the Middle East in particular, and get the insight from Ken Timmerman. Ken, great as always. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Always a pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, it's a Middle East News update with David Dolan. He's standing by. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, part of the hour and a half, 90 minutes that I need to give you the world and the current events seemingly setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. As promised, we go now to the Middle East. David Dolan with his Middle East News Update. And David, a report of an explosion of some type in Syria uh, up near Hama. Let me find out what that's all about. What's the latest on it? Well, Jimmy, there's been no confirmation from many official sources to what happened, but Arab uh, press reports, uh, both in Syria and Lebanon, are saying that it was an Israeli airstrike against a military airport in Hama that's just north of Damascus, and it's a base that's used for government bombing raids. The Assad regime uses it for bombing raids against its opponents, but there are known to be Iranian forces also stationed at that base. It's been hit before but the reports are saying that uh, at least a dozen, maybe 20, Syrian and Iranian military personnel were killed in this possible Israeli strike. Now, again, the Israelis are not confirming that they were involved. It shows all the evidence of the previous Israeli strikes. And, of course, we had the uh, Netanyahu government in Israel say again this week that Israel will continue to do everything it needs to do to prevent Iran from establishing a permanent presence uh, just to the north in Syria. And this would go along those lines. And, Jimmy, what was in the building, the press reports are saying, were uh, more Iranian surface-to-air missiles. And those are very, very uh, dangerous to Israeli aircraft. Uh, We saw, of course, one Israeli aircraft brought down by a probably Syrian anti-aircraft missile about, what, three, four weeks ago. But this is a continuation of the situation, Jimmy, but it comes as there are attempts to 
find a political solution to the Israeli-Iranian bust-up. President uh, Putin of Russia invited the Syrian President Assad to Russia this week to discuss a peace process and a political process, with Putin reportedly saying it's time now to stop the fighting and to try to work out a, a final solution here, which if, of course, that happened, it implies that Iranian forces would no longer be uh, needed in Syria at all, or at least their excuse for being there would be gone. So Iran might fight against a peace process. Jimmy, I should also note, uh, talking about this strike in Syria on Friday, that uh, there are reports that an unidentified object was shot down over the Golan Heights by Israeli forces just before that. So that may well have been another Iranian attempt to bring in a drone. That hasn't been confirmed, but something may have set uh, off an Israeli response, if indeed it was that. So the conflict continues, but attempts to try to ameliorate it by Russia uh, seem to be occurring as well. We'll stay on top of the story with David Dolan. Best information we give you will be available on my website, prophecytoday.com. Well, let's look at Turkey just a moment. It looks like Turkey and Tayyip Erdogan is urging the Islamic world to unite against Israel because of the situation there at the Gaza Strip and the border between the Palestinians there and also Israel wanting to put together an army to go after Israel. Boy, that's unnerving as well, and this is just another proof. This is an unsafe, really wild neighborhood for the Jewish state. Well, you think you have two neighbors to the north and east, one Turkey that has, I haven't checked recently, but I believe around 100 million people in it, Israel's 8 million, you've got Iran that has over 60 million, so together, there's 160 million people in countries that are openly declaring that Israel will be destroyed. Now, of course, Turkey is still officially a NATO member and still officially on the side of the West and all of these things, but Taif Erdogan has taken them much further than that. It has become an Islamic fundamentalist state under his control. He is clearly uh, emerging as a dictator. He won't be removed from power. And obviously, he wants to be the new caliph. He wants to reestablish the Turkish caliphate that ruled the area for over 400 years until World War One. And that, of course, is a great threat to Israel. He doesn't have the support of more moderate Arabs, so, Jimmy, that's important to note. And one factor this week, Egypt got involved in trying to um, also calm the situation in Gaza, like uh, Russia seems to be doing in Syria. And uh, they called Hania, the uh, Hamas leader, to Cairo for talks. And Egypt reportedly pledged to open up the border crossing, the Rafah border crossing, which has been closed, really sent the Muslim Brotherhood, was removed from power in Egypt, and the more moderates came back to power there. This is an opening for the Palestinians, possibly, and in exchange, the Egyptians are saying, calm it down. We can't have these mass shootings where the whole region's going to explode, calm things down, and uh, Hania reportedly agreed to do that. And the Friday demonstrations, Jimmy, yesterday at the border were much tamer than they have been the previous weeks, and certainly last Monday when we had over 60 Palestinians killed and hundreds wounded in that uh, day-long um, riot, really. And it was a riot, Jimmy. The films I've seen, not just officially, but from some friends that live in the area and some other things, they were tearing down the fence. They were trying to get outside of it to bomb a subterranean fence that Israel 
feels it needs to build because of all these tunnels that Hamas has been constructing under the border, and they were trying to destroy that. And, of course, machine gun fire was aimed at, the, at a nearby town, Sderot, which has been hit so many times by rockets from Gaza over the years, and the IDF responded strongly to that by hitting Hamas positions. But that seems to be calming down also, and again, it's uh, Egypt intervention that's helping with that. But at the same time, Jimmy, Hamas announced that they will hold demonstrations again on Jerusalem Day. Now, that is the Western calendar date of when Israel captured the old city of Jerusalem and reunited it in 1967. That's, of course, in early June. So we may have another round of these uh, clashes, but it looks like things are calming down a bit. But Hamas, again, Jimmy, closely associated with Iran, and what uh, Israeli leaders were saying is this has the smell of Iran again, trying to stir the region up and trying to keep Israel on edge. You throw Turkey into the mix and some others, and it's a deadly game indeed. David, could that calmness be due to Ramadan beginning and, of course, Egypt opening up those borders between the Gaza Strip and Egypt in order for some of the people to celebrate Ramadan? Could that play a role in this? It could, Jimmy. And yes, Ramadan began this week, the month-long fasting month for the Muslims, their holiest time of the year. Normally, though, we see more clashes during Ramadan, not less. The young guys in particular get all whipped up, and, and uh, you know, they haven't eaten all day, and sunset comes, and they have a meal and a smoke, and then they go out and do some fighting. And that's basically been the pattern. But this past Friday, yesterday, it looked like people were just tired, too. I mean, that was a massive clash earlier in the week and went on for several days. Of course, it wasn't just in Gaza. There was trouble in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, and there was other problems in the region. But the Israelis were celebrating because they got the embassy moved to Jerusalem on Monday, and uh, they weren't celebrating the fact that Palestinians were dying, of course. But finally, you know, one of the world powers said, we do recognize Jerusalem as your capital. That, of course, infuriates the Palestinians and really all Muslims. But it's a fact, as President Trump said, and uh, the opening went by fairly peacefully, at least in Jerusalem, although the riots were occurring about 40 miles away in the Gaza Strip. David, do us a favor. Allow our listeners to have a better understanding of Ramadan. Explain that for us. Well, it commemorates ancient battles and, you know, to go into all the history of it, but it's it's really considered, Jimmy, the time when... I guess you would say it's like Lent in the Christian calendar, a time of, and actually the Jews have the same before Yom Kippur, a period of extra reflection, extra spirituality, examining yourself, doing good. And of course, the central feature is all adults are supposed to fast from sunup to sundown, all uh, 30, well, actually, it's the um, Arabic calendar is a 28-day lunar calendar, like Israel observes as well. So the Islamic world observes that uh, 28-day calendar. So that's it. It's supposed to be a time of of joy and reflection and, and good deeds and this sort of thing. But as I've said, in recent decades, it's become a time where we've had more clashes and more violence and more terror attacks than normal. And that's especially been the case when uh, Ramadan occurs in the summer. And like uh, Jewish festivals, the uh, ancient calendar, it goes according to the moon, so it shifts around all through 
uh, the decade. It will begin in the summer, and in another 10 years, it will be in the early spring, and 10 years from that, it will be in the winter, and it moves a little bit every year. So that's the situation, but they're hoping for a peaceful Ramadan. It was a pretty good beginning, but again, during this this month of Ramadan will be Jerusalem Day and the commemoration of Israel's capture of the city 51 years ago, and that always is a time of extra tension, and it probably will be again. And at the time of Ramadan, of course, the Islamic world celebrating the giving of the Quran, which uh, they want to revert back to, and implement jihad against especially the Jewish state of Israel. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us with his Middle East news update, always on the spot to give us the information we need to have. David, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad standing by. Want to address the issue of the Christian influence on the U.S. move of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So glad you could join us. Now you've given me 30 minutes of the 90 minutes I ask for at the very beginning of the broadcast. We go into the second half hour, and then we have one more half hour after that. We're going to be talking with Winky Madad in just a moment. Then we go to Itamar Marcus. We want to find out from Itamar about the March of Return campaign that the Palestinians there at the Gaza-Israeli border have been involved in, and Nakba Day as well. And then John Rood is standing by. He has a European Union update. That's all in this half hour, so keep the dial set right where it is. Winky Madad, one of our longtime broadcast partners located in the central part of the state of Israel in a place called Shiloh, it was for a number of years actually the political and spiritual capital of the Jewish people when Moses brought the Israelites into the promised land and uh, they were headquartered where the Ark of the Covenant was located in the tabernacle there in Shiloh. But Winky, that capital city has now moved to Jerusalem. And in Israel, uh, that is the main political and spiritual and ultimately eternal capital for the Jewish people as well. Uh, There was a wonderful historic prophetic event that took place this last week 
And uh, there were a lot of uh, big, important personalities were there at the initiation of the U.S. Embassy moving from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem. I understand you were there in some of the ceremonies taking place. This was a wonderful thing to happen, the fulfillment of a campaign promise by Donald Trump, especially a wonderful gift on the 70th birthday of the Jewish State of Israel, was it not? Jimmy, I am in full agreement with your estimation of the historic and important political statement that was made in terms of moving the embassy. The beginning of the move, because of course it's only basically a few offices. Later on we have a lot of plans. I understand the United States wants to put into operation in terms of expanding the compound. The old Diplomat Hotel in about two years will probably become residential annex of the embassy and it'll just grow and of course other states are beginning to come in as well. I'm very glad the United States has caught up with about almost 3,000 years of history Mm. after David, the king of Judea, moved from Hebron up to Jerusalem and established, basically, through the prophetic message that he had received, through the eventual laying of the foundation for his son to build a temple there, and all the rest of the Jewish history, that uh, this is the Jewish capital in terms of the Jewish peoplehood, It's always been that way. Jimmy, I know you're very familiar with almost every single Jewish holiday, whether in the Bible or in the later books, and almost everything I think we've been discussing this for years on this program, in Jewish religious and cultural customs, touches in some form Jerusalem. You just cannot take Jerusalem out of the Jewish identity, and we're very pleased about that. Yes, 764 times in the Bible you find the name Jerusalem. A very significant city has been so in the past, presently, and prophetically as well. I understand, and I watched the events unfolding on Fox News uh, during the activities on last Tuesday. Very moving time, especially when Prime Minister Netanyahu got up. I've got to tell you, Winky, I mean, this is just... Uh, from down deep. I thought he was a Baptist preacher for a while, giving so much scripture, using illustrations about he and his brother playing in those fields where the U.S. Embassy is today in Jerusalem. It just was really exciting. And I want to tell you, I don't know if I've ever seen the prime minister any happier, any more excited than I did when he was standing there telling everybody, mark it down, this is a special day in history. Well, Jimmy, let's get political on this. We've been following this, as I said previously, and we all know that under the last president was one of the most dismal relationships, not in terms of security. Of course, the American administration under Obama did provide funds for the Iron Dome. However, on the political, ideological level, calling the Jewish communities illegitimate, pressing uh, the two-state solution and settlement construction to be halted, with an extreme amount of, of political, public diplomacy, and psychological terror, I would say, almost, and I use the word terror, of course, in quotation marks, that was applied. And he has been made fun of. He, his, his policies have been doubted. The, the press here and other politicians have been, very, have been very undignified in their relationship to him. And finally... Uh, with a stroke of a ballot in the United States, we have an American president that understands and identifies deeply with Israel, 
supported by many important personages in the United States, and things are going his way. I would be very happy, too, to come out of the corner and take the spotlight. Yeah, I was just really thrilled uh, with what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had to say. And, of course, thrilled with the president followed through with his campaign promise being fulfilled and moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv. It should have never have been there, but now it's in its proper place there in Jerusalem. Winky, also, during the ceremony, I noticed the Christian participation. For example, a pastor, Pastor Jeffries, from the First Baptist Church in Dallas, with the opening prayer, and then John Hagee, pastor in San Antonio, Texas, and there he gave the closing prayer. Was it controversial, and how did these men get that opportunity to be involved in the ceremony? Uh, you're a better witness than I am, Jimmy, but Menachem Begin, in 1977, as he became prime minister, reached out to what I would call, uh, I hope I'm using the proper term, evangelical community of Christians in the United States, or Bible believers, I don't know any sort of in-language, <laughs> and that development has been a long time in coming. I think as much as Christian Zionism has helped the State of Israel, going all the way back even before Herzl, we're talking about the Restoration uh, ideology in, in England and in the Netherlands and in other places of Christian Europe, parallel to some unfortunate other ideas about Jews. There's been this relationship, and it has to be nurtured, it has to be defined, it has to be mutual in the, in the sense of politics and, and faith. And now we're seeing the fruition. Israel is getting a lot of attention and support from influential circles. Politicians are listening to their voters. And I think that we in Israel are giving the evangelical community uh, in the United States uh, an ability to say our approach to the Bible and to understanding history is true and reliable and an interpretation of, the, of what the book says about what we believe God is saying to us. And I think it's a beautiful relationship, and I hope it uh, is maintained and continued in the proper uh, delineations of how we work together to faith communities. It is exciting to see that happening, and an exciting event. I just was noticing some of the News reports from the Israeli papers wanted to touch base with you. The evangelical community, the Christian community, the students of God's Word are 100% about what is happening there in Jerusalem with the embassy being moved there, it being the political capital so named by President Trump, but uh, as you mentioned, 3,000 years ago by God to King David. And ultimately, this is going to be a major city with the temple upcoming, the return of the Messiah to this city, everything that's going to happen from the reports of the ancient Jewish prophets. This is exciting as well, isn't it? Absolutely, Jimmy. I, I, I can only add a hallelujah and a main to that. <laughs> well, praise the Lord, a man of a few words. First time I've ever heard Winky Madad be a man of few words. But it is true. Hallelujah. What else can you say? And amen. Hey, Winky, thank you so much. And glad you were able to enjoy it. Our sons, Jim Jr. and Rick, were both there with our tour group. They were able to witness some of the activities well. But it's a great report. We're greatly excited about what has happened. It's a historic 
prophetic event that needed to be done a long time ago. Thank you for this report, Winky. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Jimmy, thank you for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Right now, though, we're going to stay in Jerusalem, and we're going to be talking with the man who heads up the team called Palestinian Media Watch. Their web address, palwatch.org. Itamar Marcus is the man who heads up that team, and they do monitor all the time the electronic media and the print media of the Palestinian people. And in light of that, Itamar, I want to talk to you about the campaign that's been going on now for about six weeks there at the Gaza-Israeli border, and the Palestinian people doing what they could to propagate the fact that they are not where they want to be. They would like to return to their ancestral homeland. I don't know where they ever had an ancestral homeland. We'll talk to you about that. And then this week they had Nakba, uh, the catastrophe which they commemorate. This is the 70th year they've done that. In 1948, on May the 14th, Ben-Gurion announced to the world a Jewish state, and then the next day, Catastrophe Day, as far as the Palestinian people are concerned. In result of that campaign, that march of return for the Palestinians, I know that during Nakba Day, there were about 50 of the Palestinian people that were killed, but I understand almost all of those were Palestinian terrorists. How can you update us on this border situation? Well, there are two things. First of all, the motivation, and why were all these people being sent to the fence? And the second thing is, who were the people who were killed? So first of all, the masses of people who were sent there um, were sent by the Hamas in order literally to be killed, in order to be killed. And I'm, I, I, when I say this, this is not only Palestinian Media Watch's conclusion. These were the, the words of a senior Palestinian Authority leader. Uh, his name is Mahmoud al-Abash, and he appeared on Palestinian television, and he criticized Hamas. He said, why are you sending people out just so you can come to the world and say that you're heroes? You're sending them out to be killed? You're telling the Palestinian people, go out and be killed so we Palestinian, we Hamas can be heroes. And the person saying this is one of the top Palestinian Authority leaders, an advisor to Mahmoud al So first of all, motivation. Hamas knows that they can't conquer Israel, but they want to delegitimize Israel, so they're sending people out literally to be cannon fodder, to be killed, so that Hamas can then go and run to the world and say, oh my, look, Israelis are killing all of our people. Now, the second thing that's important to know is that Israel has been very careful about using its firepower. Israel could have, with, with tens of thousands of people trying to breach the fence between the two areas, uh, there could have been many more killed. And Israel, in the end, killed 61 people. Now, Hamas has already admitted that 50 of them, on television yesterday, their spokesman said this, 50 of them were actually Hamas members, meaning they were terrorists. And the Islamic Jihad said three of their people were killed. So that we know at least 53 of the 61 who were killed were Hamas terrorists or Islamic Jihad terrorists. So we're telling us that Israel is actually being very, very careful, and it's the Hamas and their terrorists who are trying to breach it, who are trying to shoot, who are trying to set bombs. These are the people who are responsible, and these are the people who have been killed. Now, the world is being given a completely different picture by the media there, 
who is trying to present this as a as a massacre. So they're focusing on on individuals without focusing on what their identity is, they're focusing on numbers, but not an identity. They're not telling you this was a terrorist who had a gun or this was a terrorist who had a bomb. They're just telling you this is a dead body killed by Israel. Yes, very interesting how the world media is buying into this subterfuge that is taking place. Well, on last Tuesday, it was Nakba Day. For our listeners who may not yet understand what Nakba means, talk about it, tell us what it means, and then what is its history. So when Israel was created in 1948, the UN had decided to have the Arabs have a half the land, actually more than half the land, uh, and Israel would get a small portion of the land for its state, and the Arabs would have their own state. The Arabs rejected this. They wanted Israel to be completely destroyed. They went to war, and in that subsequent war, not only did they actually lose even more land to Israel, but some 750,000 local Arabs left Israel. The overwhelming majority left on their own, a small numbers might have been from particular areas that were sensitive militarily, people were sent out of their homes. In any case, that exodus of all of those people, plus the loss of the war, the Palestinians call a Nakba, which in English can be translated a catastrophe. Uh, and they celebrate that every year as the most important day on the calendar for them. The day that Israel was created was the day that they... Uh, that they decide to mourn, mourning Israel's creation. They're talking about the fact that they want to return to their ancestral homeland. Uh, just touch on that for a moment, but uh, what's the plan now? The campaign has been completed. Uh, the embassy has been moved, U.S. embassy, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They've celebrated their 70th birthday. The Israelis have so for the Palestinians, for in particular Hamas, what would be the plan now? Do you think they'll settle down, or how is it going to go? Well, I'll tell you, based on what we're seeing today in the press, a lot of the Palestinian leaders are actually furious with what Hamas had done. And there was an article that we just read a few minutes ago that we just translated, and it's a Fatah leader in the Gaza Strip, and he's saying this has to stop. And he also complained, he said, why are the Hamas leadership in the tents, way away from the front lines, and they're sending all the other people, the women and the children, to the front lines? He said, this is no way to behave. So if there's starting to be Palestinian opposition to this that's actually being printed in the papers, and even from people in Gaza, I think that the people have probably had it with the Hamas. I'm hoping they have, and hopefully that it'll calm down, even if the Hamas wanted to be more problematic. You said they were sending the women and the children to the front line. What about the educational system there in the Gaza Strip? Are they educating the children along these lines that uh, this is our land, we're going to take it, we're going to destroy Israel? Absolutely. And it's not just the Gaza Strip, but it's the Palestinian Authority. All the children in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip all use the same school books. And we are studying those school books and those school books have one map. Uh, I say one map. They have over the newest school books that came out this year have over 80 maps, and every one of them uh, is without a state of Israel. Every one of them marks all the land of Israel as Palestine. So children are brought up to see in a world in which Israel doesn't exist, a world in which Israel will not exist. And um, 
So that's a constant message from them. They get it from the activities like we're seeing in this now, when they get it in the school system. One of the reasons that they're willing to go out and be so uh, active in activities like this is because they've been brainwashed in the school system to believe that they are going to eventually replace Israel with a state of Palestine. You know, I just received your alert from palwatch.org, and Itamar, you had an article about the real truth behind the Palestinian refugee problem. This is what they're trying to illuminate to the rest of the world, but what is the real truth behind that refugee problem? Yes, this is a very important report that we just released. The Palestinians have been telling the whole world that Israel expelled three-quarters of a million Palestinians, and therefore we have to accept them into Israel today. Uh, what this video shows, we put together 13 testimonies of refugees themselves, as well as Palestinian leaders, and the common denominator between all of them is that the Arabs left on their own, under instructions primarily from the Palestinian, from the Arab leadership. One of them complained that the Arab armies forced them to leave. One of them described how he left Jaffa. He said the leadership sent cars with megaphones in the streets telling everybody to leave Jaffa. And they also explained the reasoning. One of them said they, the armies wanted us to leave so that the Arab armies could come in and liquidate or exterminate the Jewish people and the Jewish state. So the Arabs left to enable possibly mass bombardments, mass attacks, uh, liquidation of the Jewish population, and that's what they were planning. So they're leaving their homes with a tactical uh, activity. And who's saying this? The refugees themselves are saying this. That's why this video is so important. And I urge all of your listeners to go to our website, palwatch.org, and, and click on that video so that you can see one refugee after another all of them putting the blame on the Arabs, so that when people come to you and say, well, Israel expelled the refugees, they say, no, no, that's not what the refugees themselves are saying. They're putting the blame on the Arab leadership. Well, let me just remind everybody, and I encourage all of you to go to palwatch.org, first of all, to watch that video that's just been produced by Itamar and his team, but secondly, to sign up for that alert so you can stay on top of what really the Palestinian media is saying. Itamar, a very great service that you have for us here on Prophecy Today, but really we're just a small part of the rest of the world who needs to know this information. Thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again soon. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we're going to change the region of the world to the European Union. John Root is the man who covers that for us. And John, for a number of years, you lived there in Brussels, Belgium. Now there's a report coming from the European Union Council headquarters, Don Tusk, who is the chairman of the 28 member states. He made the statement this week with friends like President Trump, who needs enemies. Explain what he was talking about and give us some details. European Union actually has a situation where they've created a president of the European Council who is known to be, in a sense, the president of Europe. And it kind of goes back to a quote from Henry Kissinger saying, when I want to call Europe, I don't know who to call. And so he's a figurehead, and he works also with the head of the European Commission. Now, Donald Tusk, who's been the um, president of the Council, therefore president of the European Union, so to speak, of the 28 nations. He's been there since 2014. He was the prime minister of Poland from 2007 to 2014. 
And Poland has been traditionally one of the more pro-United States EU member states. And so this is interesting because Donald Tusk is being forced here basically to take the European Union stand, and he's being more direct in the areas of these tensions. The EU relations with the, the United States, they're having a number of pressure points now, the trade agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, U.S. embassy relocation to Jerusalem. And so he's having to face a strong stand from President Trump and he's really doing a balancing act. It's very interesting. He wants to be popular in his own country as well. The Polish president right now, Duda, actually came out and said Donald Tusk is not a Polish uh, politician anymore, but he's a European politician. So the EU is caught in the middle trying to protect their interests. And it, it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek statement saying that Donald Trump could be possibly as an enemy but they're testing all the boundaries. They're testing the waters. This is the system that they use. And uh, you mentioned there that they were talking about or had differences about the Iranian deal. It looks like these European leaders are agreeing they're going to stay united to keep that Iranian nuclear deal alive. Is that the case right now? Yes. They're saying the EU as a group of states, which is already notable because it has to be a unanimous decision from the 28 leaders, they're saying that they will keep the Iran nuclear deal intact as long as Iran will keep their side of the deal. So what will happen here is they're going to focus on the diplomatic negotiations, and they're just going to take some of these huge economic interests, one by one, Airbus, et cetera, et cetera, and they will work on independent diplomatic negotiations and work on individual deals with those companies. They threatened to throw out all of the sanctions from the United States. That would be quite difficult to do. And again, they're absolutely in the middle of this situation where they don't want to neglect the United States. If they have to choose between Iran and the United States, they will choose the United States, but they're not willing to do that. Uh, also, it's interesting that the decisions that have been coming out right now uh, were from the Bulgaria summit, and the European Union Council has a rotating system every six months of one of the member states holding the presidency. So with 28 states, you can imagine what that schedule is like. So now Bulgaria, Estonia, and Austria are holding the six-month presidency of the council, and so the meeting in Bulgaria is of the very highest EU summit level. And so they're in the middle here. They're going to assert themselves, which is unusual, but they're trying to see what the boundaries are with President Trump in the United States. John, back in 2014, Vladimir Putin gave the order his military took Crimea, the peninsula off the Ukraine there, into the Black Sea. They knew that they had to move the materials over to this warm water port for Russia, so they built a bridge, and this last week, Vladimir Putin actually drove one of the trucks, in fact, led uh, that column of trucks across that bridge, historic event unfolding over there to Crimea. looks like uh, Russia is going to take Crimea forever, forget about ever giving it back to uh, the Ukraine. 
I would imagine Russia had never really considered uh, Crimea part of the Ukraine with multi-hundred-year history. But Russia has been very assertive in the region right now. The new bridge is the longest bridge in Europe, 19 kilometers. And so it's certainly to be used for military purposes as well and to strengthen the position of Russia in Crimea. One thing to note is that there's only, there's two land roads that come from the north, Ukraine, into Crimea. But for Russia to pass without going through Ukraine, then you're forced to essentially create this uh, longest bridge in Europe, and it's over to the eastern side. Now, there's been plans to do that even from the uh, late 19th century in the Tsarist times, but now it's been completed, and the timing of this certainly is it will be for military implications and for strengthening the position. Russia has 260,000 troops on the border with Ukraine uh, as we're talking, and so it's a very, very hot region right now, and unfortunately the world has forgotten there's even a war in Ukraine. And that's why we wanted to bring that to their attention, and we do that with the man who covers the European Union for us, John Rood, lived for a number of years in Brussels, Belgium, headquarters for the European Union Council, the 28 member states. John, great report. Thank you so much, my good friend. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. Great talking with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, one more interview on Prophecy Today. David James and I will talk about the Jews and salvation. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We move into the last half hour. If you're still with us, I ask you for an hour and a half, 90 minutes, and you're just about to give me all of that. Don't want you to miss my conversation with David James in a moment. What about Jews and salvation through Jesus Christ? That's our issue we'll be discussing in just a moment. Do me a favor, if you will, go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to the home page on the left-hand column. If you'll scroll down, you'll find my poll question. would love for you to respond to the question. Here is the question, in case you have not found it yet. Do you believe current events that fit the prophetic scenario that are found in Bible prophecy are actually setting the stage for prophecy to be fulfilled? Now, we want you to answer that question. When I take a look at the book in just a moment, I'll talk about those current events and the prophetic passages of Scripture that deal with each of them. So if you haven't made up your mind yet, wait till that time, then we'd love for you to answer the question. There at prophecytoday.com. Also, go to my section on Joshua Travel, telling you about all the upcoming tours we have to Israel. Jim and Rick are in the land now. They'd love to escort you through the land of the Bible in one of our future tours. Find out about it at Joshua Travel. And then let me just give you a heads up. VCY America 
is going to be sponsoring radio rallies throughout all parts of the upper north, the Midwest. We're talking about Wisconsin, Minnesota, South Dakota, the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, and in Kansas. And we'll be up there in June. We'd love to have you come to one of the radio rallies for VCY America. We'll have it on my website at the scheduling. And, of course, if you go to VCY America, they have it available as well. Love to have you come and join us in these conferences. We now bring to these microphones David James. It's the time of the week for our conversation when we look at an issue confronting the body of Christ, and we try to give a biblical understanding of that issue so it will assist you in your Christian walk. So glad you could join us today. Uh, Before we get to our main topic today, though, I would also want to take a moment briefly to encourage our listeners to join us here in Chattanooga for our upcoming School of Prophets conference the last week of May, where you'll be teaching Understanding Islam. Maybe you could share a few thoughts of what you're going to be speaking on and covering. This is a brand new course for you. Well, we'll be looking at the origins and and the development of Islam, the five pillars of Islam, the major teachings of the Quran and the Hadith, uh, comparing and understanding the differences between Sunni, Shia, and Sufi Islam. We'll be looking at Islamic eschatology and the biblical role of Islam in the end times. Answering the popular question, is the Antichrist going to be Islamic? Are Allah and Yahweh just different names for the same God? Also trying to look at understanding Islamic terrorism in light of the doctrine of abrogation, looking at uh, various Islamic terrorist groups such as Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, and also looking at uh, current issues and missions and evangelism in the Islamic world. So I think it will be a good course for our students. I'm excited about the opportunity to be able to start a three-part series that I'll be teaching at the School of Prophets Conference for the next three periods of time. This one here in the beginning almost of the summer, and then in the time in December and again next spring. I'm going to be taking everybody through the entire Bible, all 66 books, and I'm going to deal with the prophetic passages from each of those. I've been preparing myself, and I'm excited about what we're going to be teaching as well. So if you need more information, go to my website, prophecytoday.com, and there on the home page, you'll see a rotating banner up top. When it comes up, School of Prophets, double-click on it. You can get all the information, how to register, and if you can't come, how you can use live streaming, television, video available to teach you the subjects that David and I will be teaching this conference. David, this week, several Israeli news organizations carried articles claiming that the former congresswoman, Michelle Bachman, apologized for suggesting Jews needed to convert to Christianity. But you know, as you and I have looked into this further, The research tells us, and it turns out, that this may not be an accurate report. That's right. I was first alerted to this with an article that you sent me, a link to the Arutz Sheva website, which is part of the IsraelNationalNews.com organization. 
their title on the article was Michelle Bachman apologized for urging Jews to convert. And then later, the first paragraph in their article, they say former Republican congresswoman from Minnesota and founder of the Congressional Tea Party Caucus, Michelle Bachman made an emotional speech, and this was at the Knesset this past Sunday, and apologized for her behavior. And they were referring to an interview that she did in 2015 on uh, the radio show Washington Watch, and they say during that interview she called for efforts to convert Jews en masse to Christianity to hasten the end of days, and then they interpreted that to mean that she was saying that she was apologizing for saying that Jews had to convert to Christ uh, in order to be saved, and actually it was, as you dig deeper into this, it turns out that this very much seems like a misrepresentation when you look at the what she said in the interview and then some other conclusions uh, as we've done further research. David, let's unpack this a bit more to help our listeners understand what's at stake concerning this story. Now, first of all, uh, let's discuss Michelle Bachman and why her voice is important in the conversation about American-Israeli relationships, as well as the matter of the need for Jews to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, she has been a longtime member of the Republican Party. She's a former member of the United uh, United States House of Representatives. She was Minnesota's 6th Congressional District Representative from 2007 to 2015, which includes uh, several of the northern uh, suburbs of uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul as well as St. Cloud. So she's important, had been important in uh, Minnesota politics, but also on the national stage. And in 2012, she was a, a candidate for the Republican nomination in the U.S. presidential election. And as I noted earlier from a Sheva article, she was a founder of the House Representatives Tea Party Caucus and is a strong supporter of the Tea Party movement. Beyond that, though, she is a well-known and outspoken Christian. She graduated from a Christian university and she has been a longtime supporter of the nation of Israel. Now, one potential problem is it seems that she has had influence in dominionism, which it would be a problem theologically, but she certainly stands with the nation of Israel, and even dominionism would suggest that she would firmly believe that everyone needs to convert to Christ in order to be saved. David, I think another important factor in the reports by the Israeli media is what seems to be a pretty deep misunderstanding by the average Jewish person when it comes to Christian Zionism and evangelicals in general who support the nation of Israel. And, of course, they would then support the recognition of Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the Jewish state and the opening of the American embassy in Jerusalem just this week. Well, that's true, and I think this is broadly true among uh, Jews uh, around the world as, as they look at evangelicals and Christian Zionists. For one thing, not all Jews, in fact, perhaps even only a minority of Jews are Zionists in general, because um, there are so many atheistic and agnostic Jews, non-religious Jews throughout Israel and including in Israel. But beyond that, I think even those who are looking for the Messiah think that evangelicals are actually wanting to help Israel to build the temple, the third temple, and that they're behind these battles and things that are happening in the Middle East. 
and doing this in order to hasten the return of the Lord, which is a complete misunderstanding of the, the thinking of most evangelicals. Evangelicals are standing with Israel and are participating and in, in working to help them because, one, the Abrahamic covenant says that God will bless those who bless Abraham and his descendants and curse those who stand against them. And furthermore, we understand that we have our roots as Christians in in Judaism. Our Savior is Jewish, and even though Judaism is no longer in effect, we have a deep respect and understanding of the Old Testament and uh, a love for the Jewish people and a love for that place, which is the apple of God's eye, which is Jerusalem and the Promised Land. As you were researching this story, David, and trying to get to the truth about whether Miss Bachman actually did apologize for saying Jews needed to turn to Christ for salvation, it was the version of the story that was in the Times of Israel that made it fairly clear that she really had been misrepresented. That's true. If you go back to her interview in 2015, she said this, We recognize the shortness of the hour, and that's why we as a remnant want to be faithful in these days and do what it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to each one of us and to be faithful in the kingdom and to help bring in as many as we can, even among the Jews, share Jesus Christ with everyone that we possibly can, because, again, he's coming soon. First of all, she said nothing about uh, trying to hasten the end of days. But then in the Times of Israel article, it was noted that one of the reporters after the Knesset session asked whether her apology was referring to her conversion comments and whether she retracted those statements. And actually, Bachman did not answer that question directly. She said, my statement of apology or my statement stands for itself, which means that she just would not answer that question. And of course, she was trying to be careful in the way she answered. And so she actually did not retract her statement on conversion. She simply was stating that she and others and Christians throughout history have done things that have been inappropriate, done and said things toward the Jews, and that she was apologizing for anything that she had done that had been inappropriate, but she actually did not retract that statement. David, unfortunately, there are some evangelicals who do believe that Jews do not need to become Christians in order to be saved, and that they can find salvation through faithfulness to the law of Moses. That's right, and one form of this is referred to as dual covenant theology. In other words, God has one covenant with Christians, and he has yet another covenant that still stands in effect for the Jewish people, so that Christians, that most people must turn to Christ, all Gentiles in general must turn to Christ for salvation, but that the Jews can, by, as you said, being faithful to the law of Moses and being faithful to that covenant with God, that uh, they can find salvation in their own way apart from Christ. However, the book of Romans argues strongly against that, especially when we also understand the purpose of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was never a means of salvation. It was a means for a redeemed people to stand in a right relationship with God in their daily walk and to live as a nation, but it was, they were not saved by that. You're saved the way Abraham was, and that he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And in Romans chapters 1, 
1 and 2, it's, it may, Paul makes it very clear that both Jews and Gentiles stand equally condemned as sinners before God, and that there's nothing that we can do, either Jew or Gentile, on our own that would bring us into a right relationship with God. And then when you go to Romans chapter 10, this is extremely important, because in verse 9 of Romans 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he says down in verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, and whoever calls on the Lord, name of the Lord, shall be saved. So when you combine Romans 1 and 2 with Romans chapter 10, what we find is that Jews and Gentiles are equally condemned. Those who are under the law and those who are outside the law are equally condemned as sinners before God, and there is no distinction either as sinners, nor is there any distinction, as Paul says, when it comes to salvation, that one must call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. It really couldn't be more clear. Absolutely, and I think that is key for everybody to understand. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. We need to endeavor to try to win everybody. Gentile and Jew to Jesus Christ. David, I think this was a very important report. You corrected the misunderstanding about Michelle Bachman, and we spoke about a very important issue as it relates to eternal life, eternal salvation. Thank you so much for your research and for participating. We'll have another issue to discuss next week. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be with you again. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to take a look at the book. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. 
It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. We do this after having talked with our broadcast partners, getting reports from all across the world, and then I take what they had to say about the activities unfolding today that seemingly fit into a prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible. I want you to listen to them. If you had to miss any of them, may I suggest you go to my website, prophecytoday.com, go to PTRN, and there you can listen to all of the reports from my broadcast partners. And would you do me a favor? Tell a friend. They need to hear these reports as well. Right now, on a look at the book, I'm going to go through these reports from our broadcast partners and give you a prophetic perspective on each of them. We talked to Ken Timmerman in Washington, D.C., from that major city of our world, talked about the North Korean summit, the meeting between President Trump and the leader of North Korea, Kim. Is it on? Is it off? Everybody is not knowing the answer to that question. Ken gave us some great insight into what is really happening. May I just mention to you Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. That refers to the kings of the east at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. These kings of the east, which includes China, India, Japan, South Korea, and North Korea— If indeed they are still around at that time, at the end of the tribulation period, North Korea will be involved in those kings of the east coming in, going to Jerusalem. They will be the nations basically out of that region of the world that will gather at Jerusalem. And the reason for that, all the other nations have been wiped out by this time in the tribulation. You remember that George W. Bush referred to the axis of evil. That was North Korea, Iran, and Syria. Now, they're all major players today and they are in line for setting up the stage that will lead to the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 16, and maybe even involvement before that does happen. Then we covered the Middle East, David Dolan, who has been doing that as a journalist for over 35 years. We talked about the threat from Tayyip Erdogan, who is the president of Turkey. He has called for the Islamic world to come together. They're going to have a summit in Ankara, Turkey. And there he's going to invite all of these Islamic leaders to put together an Islamic army. They want to deal with the situation happening there in Israel at the Gaza Strip-Israeli border, and they're going there to defend the Palestinian people. Well, let me again remind you, the Palestinian people are the descendants of Esau, and also let me remind you, there's more judgment that is pronounced against these people, the Palestinian people today, than any other people group in the world. Jot down these verses, if you will. We're talking about Malachi chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 35, the book of Jeremiah chapter 49, and also the little book of Obadiah. Well, that's what the Palestinians are going to do. It's going to continue on until the end of the seven-year tribulation period. However, Turkey, who is now joining the rest of the world to attack Israel because of their protection of their border there with the Palestinians, forming this Islamic army, 
That's at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, an alignment of nations that will try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Turkey is mentioned in that alignment, Ezekiel 38, verses 2 and 6, that's Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. The other passages that parallel Ezekiel 38, Daniel chapter 11, and Psalm 83. We had an exciting conversation with Winky Madad. He was a Jewish leader that was so excited about the activities that took place on Monday, the moving of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We had a great conversation. You don't want to miss that one that I had with Winky Madad. But all we did was emphasize the importance of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is key to the end times. In Revelation chapter 11, there will be a temple at the midway point of the tribulation in Jerusalem. In Revelation 13, that is the most detailed passage of Scripture on the Antichrist. He will go in, desecrate the Holy of Holies in that temple in Jerusalem. And then the false prophet, another member of the satanic trinity, will put up an image of the beast that the entire world has to worship. And, of course, in Revelation 19, Jesus Christ will come back to Jerusalem to receive the kingdom from God his Father. And that's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Edomar Marcus talked about the Palestinians again. We talked about the March of Return. It's somewhat slowed down because of Ramadan. And also, Egypt called the Palestinian leader to Cairo to tell him, hey, let's calm things down now for a while. They've already moved the embassy. Let's get back to normal activities. Well, the march is part of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They may well slow down for Ramadan. And that's, of course, where the Islamic people celebrate the giving of the Quran, a 30-day fast. After that, the Palestinian leaders say that that conflict will only intensify. John Rood, who is the man that covers the European Union for us, he told us that all European Union members are united about trying to save the Iranian nuclear deal. Well, of course, the European Union will ultimately be the revived Roman Empire, Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 9. And I've just mentioned Iran in the alignment of nations, both of these entities, players in the end time scenario. And then I talked with David James, my weekly conversation. We talked about Jews and that they must be saved. They need to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in this day. Romans chapter 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and that is a message to both the Jews and the Gentiles. The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew and also the Gentile. Romans chapter 1. May I just give you the bottom line? In the content of all of these conversations, it was the fact that the next event on God's calendar of activities is about to happen, and that's the rapture of the church. That's when Jesus calls us up to be with him. My dear friend, that rapture could happen even today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 